On this episode of This Week in Linux, we have a big announcement from Ubuntu that is probably going to be a bit polarizing. We're also going to cover some other distro news from OpenMandriva, Alpine Linux, OpenSUSE, EndeavorOS, and Regolith Linux. Then we're going to check out some hardware news from Pine64 for the Pinebook Pro and Slimbook's new all-in-one PC. Later in the show, we'll take a look at some news from CERN, Netflix, Huawei, Mattermost, Wayfire, which is a, Wayland, a new Wayland compositor, and more. So all that and much more is coming up. I'm Michael Tanel with Tux Digital, and this is your weekly source for Linux GNU's. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. You can get all this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software, languages, and frameworks. You can get started on DigitalOcean for a month for free with a $50 credit by going to do.co slash tux. That's do.co slash tux. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with a $50 credit. So you can get an entire month for free with that $50 credit so you can test all kinds of different droplets and just by going to do.co slash tux. And again, thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. A first in the show is a pretty polarizing topic, and it is the definitely the most hot topic of this week, and that is Ubuntu has announced that they're going to be dropping i386, aka 32-bit packages, from future releases, starting with Eon Ermine or Ubuntu 19.10. So, this is a interesting decision. Actually, I think it's a terrible decision, but uh, there are some reasons to get rid of 32-bit packages in certain ways, in certain, you know, there's certain scenarios where it does make sense, and there's also scenarios where, well, they shouldn't do that. So let's talk about some of the stuff that they that, that makes sense to do. So, for example, having 32-bit versions of a distro, like offerings of an ISO, would be a lot more difficult because it adds a lot of extra uh, development time. It, adds, it requires a lot of testers and users, but there's not that many testers and users, so it makes it complicated to offer that. So it makes sense that they would stop making ISOs, which they did uh, last year. Uh, but still, it makes sense that they would do that. It also makes sense to drop 32-bit packages for most packages. You know, There's really no reason to have a 32-bit uh, package for Firefox these days. There's no reason to have one. For, actually, you can't even have one for Chrome, period. So there's, no, like, there's, there's many reasons why you should get rid of the 32-bit packages for things that don't really have a reason to keep them. However, there is... There is an important factor to keep 32-bit around, and that is the base libraries or the base libs. And this is allow this the reason to do this is because it allows support for older software. It also allows support for games because a lot of games these days, even if they're made native for Linux, they are still in a 32-bit format, and therefore they need 32-bit libraries in order to run. Now, this is not true for every game, but it is true for the vast majority of games. Probably around 80% of games are somewhat reliant on 32-bit. And Steam, for example, it requires 32-bit libraries to run the client and to run, well, most games. So, base libs are important, but this does seem to be that they are going to get rid of these packages entirely, including the base libs. So the community did not respond to this very well. And when I say community, I don't mean community in the sense of uh, the Linux community. I, I mean, yes, that's true. The Linux community did not respond very well, but also just the regular tech community because people are t- talking about it in a variety, variety of places like Engadget, Gizmodo, Inquirer even. So there's a lot of places that are talking about it. And, well, it just breaks a lot of stuff with very little reason to do so because I understand not supporting thousands and thousands of 32-bit packages. I get that. You can limit it down to the base libs, and by doing so, you're supporting maybe 250. Still quite a bit, but not thousands. So, you know, it's it's ridiculous that they're even doing this, but let's get more in details because uh, there was a response from... Uh, Steam, Steve Langasek, who was the guy who originally announced this on the mailing list. Uh, the, Will Cook is the person who put it on the, on the discourse forum, but it was really announced on the mailing list. Uh, so anyway, he says, 
because of all this confusion and because of all this like um, negative response towards this, well, he's he's responded with saying, "I'm sorry that we've given anyone the impression that we are dropping support for i30 for i386 applications. It is simply not the case. We are dropping." What we are dropping is updates to the i386 libraries, which will be frozen at the 18.04 LTS versions. So, this is not a good response because this is kind of like saying, "This is, you know, don't worry, we're not actually dropping it. We are just like freezing the version or whatever." Now, the problem with that is that that is not acceptable either because those that won't work. If you take in 1804 libraries to the 1910 packages, the versions between the libraries for 64-bit and 32-bit will be incompatible, and therefore it doesn't matter that they're still there. They might as well not be there. So I don't think this is a valid response because it doesn't solve anything. It's just pretending that it's not a big deal when it totally is. So Valve responded to this, not this particular message, but in the overall thing, basically the next day when they found out this was happening, uh, Valve's uh, developer, I'm not sure if Valve officially agrees with this developer statement, but Pierre Lou, a.k.a. Uh, Plagueman2, stated on his Twitter that Ubuntu 19.10 and future releases will not be officially supported by Steam or recommended to our users. We will evaluate ways to minimize breakage for existing users, but we'll also switch our focus to a different distribution, which is currently to be determined. So, this is not good. When I talked about the Gizmodo and the Engadgets and those types of, of things talking about it, they're talking specifically about the Valve statement, the Valve ap approach to it. Because Valve is saying that they're no longer going to be promoting or supporting Ubuntu, that's a huge that's a huge damage issue for Ubuntu. It creates a problem in the sense that even new users, when they're suggested, they're typically suggested Ubuntu or Ubuntu base because the idea is that it's easy to use those distros. But if they want to game, this decision makes that really hard. And it makes it, makes the, it makes the answer for what's the easiest to use not be Ubuntu. So, Valve is looking to try to use a different distribution, and the fact that the 1804 statement previously, like the response from Steve, was not a valid response and doesn't change anything, it's still problematic. In fact, uh, we actually got I, I I found out like well, one of the things is that the the talk about this was on the mailing list for a long time, but the the mailing list typically had stuff about getting rid of the ISOs and yeah, sure, go ahead, getting rid of most packages, yeah, sure, go ahead, but everything, hmm, I don't know, that's that's a bit much. And most people don't look at mailing lists because, yes, those are public. Anybody can look at them. But, I mean, who cares? It's like it's not the 90s anymore. Very rarely do people actually pay attention to mailing lists other than the developers on them. However, in this case, after this happened, I looked at another mailing list, which was the Wine mailing list, and they did respond to this in their mailing list. And specifically... Based on the 1804 versus 1904 packages, or 1910 packages, uh, Roseanne DeMezio, I don't know, I think, uh, wrote on the mailing list for Wine that the suggestion from Ubuntu is to use 32-bit packages, 32-bit libraries from 1804, which will be supported for 2023. It's theoretically possible to build 32-bit side on the OBS using their, their, their build system, using the libraries from 1804, but that would lead to a mismatch in library versions. The 32-bit and 64-bit sides were built would be built against different versions. And then Roseanne says, apt requires the i386 and the AMD64 versions of packages to match or it will refuse to install them. So unless that changes, users of 1910 and up will be unable to install 32-bit libraries they need to run Wine. Well, they or they could just downgrade a significant part of their system to 1804 versions. And I guess that's the solution too. But essentially, Roseanne is saying that the the reason why the statement from Steve is not a valid statement and not not doesn't change anything is because the mismatch version makes it not matter. It makes it, because apt can't install them or refuses to install them. It essentially breaks the the you know, that response entirely because it breaks the system in the sense of support. It's also worth noting that Vincent uh, Povrick from Code Weavers, also on the mail wine mailing list, 
it actually hurts wine in other ways, not just gaming, because wine basically th- he, he's saying that basically all applications on Windows, whether they are 64-bit or not, use 32-bit installers. And the reason they do that is because uh, it's useful for when 64-bit applications are being packaged on or being ran on 32-bit Windows computers because they wouldn't like they wouldn't be able to the 32-bit Windows computer wouldn't be able to run the 64-bit installer, so they just default to using a 32-bit installer regardless. So even then, there's many ways that getting software just in not even just games, but all kinds of different software and wine would not work. So that creates another problem. And then also, uh, Vincent talks about the idea between having 1804 packages on the 1910 system because uh, there was another thing that was mentioned in the frequently asked questions for this particular forum post uh, for the announcement was that they could use LXD containers or some kind of uh, containerized environment like a snap or something to solve this problem. And yes, that is an option, not a very good option, but it's an option. Um, and the response from Vincent on that particular topic says, this would use the 1804 packages in a snaps environment. But since there's no expectation of long-term support for the environment containing those 32-bit packages, I can't see any point of putting some, uh, as much effort as needed into this temporary solution. So yes, you could do it, but there's essentially uh, uh, like four years of you know, support. So the, the four years support inside of the snap, inside of the container, is, is not a reasonable thing for them to spend the time to make it work when they know it's going to break at some point anyway. Like, what is the point of making it work with those packages when those packages are no, are no longer going to be supported, creating, or going right back to the same problem? So, Canonical would not be supporting it, or Ubuntu would not be supporting it. So, it's it's a, it's an unfortunate topic. And I, I understand that it's possible that they'll revert their decision. They'll keep the base libs. Hopefully they do keep the base libs there. There's, there's a benefit to doing that, but I don't, I don't, it's such a weird decision and I don't get it. I don't know why they did this because it just hurts themselves. There is no, there's no way they're going to force steam or valve to, you know, rebuild their stuff or take over the libraries and stuff. It's, it's makes more sense for them to just switch to a different distro. Because they, they, their entire purpose of using Linux was to have support for all distributions. And that's why Valve coming to Linux was so awesome because they did that. They made their own distribution called SteamOS, but that wasn't their focus. Their focus was to make every single game that works on SteamOS to work on Linux. They even specifically said that when game developers made their games to work on SteamOS, that if they did not work on regular Linux and, and completely then it didn't count, it didn't work on SteamOS. So they took it to a degree of making sure that everything worked on whatever distro. So they can just jump to whatever distro and they would be fine as long as they create a partnership with whoever they jump to. And I think there's a potential that they will do that. I mean, they basically said it, and even if Ubuntu or Canonical changes their minds and doesn't get rid of the base libs, I don't. I don't know if they can revert this decision because their responses for why this is being done is, I mean, not acceptable. Because they they've now you know pulled back saying that it's not. Well, this is not really what we're doing. But the thing that they said that they're doing is not, is not a solution either. It's also a bad idea. So, I don't know. Uh, this this topic could go on for a very long time. So I'm gonna go ahead and just end it there. I guess. Uh, so. Uh, if you would like to talk about it in the comments below, feel free to do so. And I'd love to have it continue the conversation or in the live chat because I know there's going to be a lot of conversation about this particular topic. And, yeah. Oh, by the way, I said I was going to move on, but I just wanted to point out other distributions I saw in this in the frequently asked questions. It says well, other distributions have also dropped 32-bit packages. And, yes, they have, but not the base libs in order to keep support for these things. Arch got rid of 32-bit except base libs. OpenSUSE Leap got rid of 32-bit, except for base libs. So, yeah. Keep the base libs, at least. The rest of it, feel free to get rid of, but keep the base libs, because they're necessary. Even if, but, you know, I don't know. If you don't, and you do go through the process, 
of getting rid of all 32-bit support, period, and you break gaming and you break support of, of using certain applications that are like industry-specific applications that are required for, you know, uh, servers or hospitals or government places or whatever, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. So I don't know why this isn't being done, but we'll see what happens. Uh, Ubuntu, don't do this. You're only hurting yourself. Anyway, moving on. So I was going to end it right there, but there was a good point made in the live chat that I wanted to uh, address, and that was from the Peppermint developer, uh, Mark Greaves, said that they're not just hurting themselves. And the point he's making is that I completely agree. There is potentially that, that Ubuntu and Canonical are hurting Linux in general by making this decision because if someone goes to someone gets the information about Ubuntu is the most popular distribution or Ubuntu is the easiest one to use. And then they try to play gaming. So they try to get games and it doesn't work at all. That is going to put a very negative opinion of Linux in general by that, that reaction, you know, that, that result will be very bad and very negative to the overall community. In fact, so unless something unless somehow ubuntu is dethroned as the number one distro for desktops usage i i agree that is totally a good point that it will hurt more than just themselves it'll hurt themselves for sure but also a little bit more so that's unfortunate you know it's it's interesting i was having a conversation with uh some people on discord last night uh, and it just it wasn't really about this but it came up of course and uh, jj talked about something that was interesting and I agree to a point, but the statement was basically, why is it that when Linux gets the opportunity to, to take get a any kind of advantage, we just shoot ourselves in the foot? And now this is applying to like when Windows 7 or when, when Vista came out or when XP was out of our end of life or when Windows 8 came out and 8.1 was still terrible. And we have all these different examples of when we could do things good. And then we just don't capitalize. And then now that Windows 7 is um, end of life next year, there's another another opportunity. And the opportunity isn't that great because people still are willing to use Windows 10. Uh, but as soon as people realize that Windows 10 is a cesspool of privacy violations, it becomes a pos an opportunity. So it's not as good as the Windows 8 debacle. It's not as good as the Vista debacle. But... Then we do this. I don't know. So all I could say is I hope that they revert this decision. And if they don't, best of luck to Ubuntu. But I have very high suspicion the result will not be good for you. If you want to learn more about this, there are thousands of topics and articles talking about it. You can find it. Just search Ubuntu 32, but you'll find a ton. But I will have a link to the mailing list post and the forum in the show notes. In some positive news, OpenMandriva has released 4.0, codename Nitrogen. And OpenMandriva is a fork, or not a fork. Yeah, technically it is a fork. It's a derivative of Mandriva, which is a derivative of Mandrake. And so it has its roots all the way back to Mandrake. And it is a RPM-based distribution that is now making some interesting changes because they are using um, the their compiler is going is not a hundred percent clang or clang, but it is ninety eight percent of it. So that's pretty interesting that they're using that instead of the the GCC and everything. Uh, but they're also uh, utilizing Calamari's as their installer and they're focusing on KDE Plasma as the desktop environment, which is good decision. And they have upgraded their kernel to 5.1.9. They've updated Xorg and Mesa drivers to not the exact latest one, but right before that. And the same thing with Plasma. That's not the, the latest one that just came out, but it's the one right before that. So they still have pretty up-to-date, even if it is not the latest thing. Um, but they do have something that's pretty interesting with the latest release is that they've switched their package manager to DNF from Fedora because it is an RPM-based distro as being based on Mandrake. And uh, the DNF package is, uh, you know, the DNF package tool is a much better tool than the uh, URPMI or uh, YUM or anything. Like DNF is a really good, uh, really good choice. Uh, it's pretty interesting, and I think that it's, uh, it's, it's worth checking out if you haven't before 
because it does have a lot of cool things that they keep up to date with like the core features of the, of the system. So if you are interested in checking out RPM Distro, I think Open Driva is worth checking out. And uh, yeah, so I have a link to it in the show notes if you'd like to check it out. Alpine Linux 3.10.0. If you haven't heard of it, Alpine Linux, they describe themselves as a security-oriented, lightweight Linux distribution based on Muzzle, uh, LibC, and BusyBox. So you'll notice that the, 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 the these listing of these options kind of imply that they're not GNU-related uh, distribution, as in they don't use GNU tools. And that is an interesting approach because Alpine is one of those distros that do not use GNU packages or you know stack in their distribution, and uh, you know that could be a reason for, to use it for some people who might not like GNU. Uh, but there are also some interesting things that they're doing, in the sense that they are they're they have new features in this latest release, such as uh, switching to IWD, which is an alternative for WP or W. PA supplicant for Wi-Fi, and also the uh, they've they added support for serial and Ethernet support for ARM boards, and they are using the distributed object store and file system Ceph, as well as uh, switching to the LightDM Display Manager, which is pretty interesting because LightDM has a, some a lot of cool concepts behind it. At the same time, is uh, they have a, like a, a lot of lightweight approaches for it, and also some. You can you can you know have a wide variety of options in LightDM, so that's pretty cool too. Anyway, uh, if you'd like to learn more about Al- Alpine Linux, I think it's definitely worth checking out. So I'll have a link to 3.10.0 in the show notes. Up next in the show is some interesting news from the OpenSUSE team, and that is that they are considering a differing approach to their governance, which also would be potentially a different branding of the name OpenSUSE. So they might be dropping the SUSE part or they might just be completely, you know, switching it up to something else. Uh, it's really completely up in the air. There's not really any news about uh, any, like, main decision. But I just think it's an interesting thing that they're talking about because of, like, what benefits and negatives that could come from that. So in a marketing perspective, in the branding perspective, I'm actually a marketer and designer, so I have a lot of experience in this particular topic. And it's they have, they're in a situation where both decisions have valid uh, value and also uh, negative connotation too, in the sense that if they were to do it, they'd be able to have a separate foundation that would be able to take donations. They'd be able to organize events without SUSE uh, involvement. They'd be able to do a lot of things that they're kind of limited in the way that they are now by using the SUSE name. They're limited to the trademarks and the uh, restrictions of those trademarks and how they are allowed to do things on behalf of SUSE because they're essentially representing SUSE. Um, so it by changing their name, they'd be able to uh, you know do all those things and get rid of the the situation of using that trademark. But at the same time, that trademark is also really big and powerful, so they have benefit to keep it. So there's both sides have pros and cons. So it's definitely an interesting dis- uh, discussion and debate that they're having about doing this. So they've been talking about it for a few uh, board meetings recently uh, about whether they're going to switch it or not or what they're going to do with the p- potential of changing the name and you know that kind of thing. I think overall there would be very beneficial things to do to change the name, but they still would want to keep association to SUSE. And SUSE themselves said that they wouldn't be losing any kind of uh, you know interaction with OpenSUSE. They would still be involved. They just wouldn't be have the same branding. So, uh, so like despite seeking out a change in the governance, the uh, Richard Brown, the chairman of OpenSUSE, has and also the SUSE leadership themselves have said that they uh, they they've you know reiterated the commitment that they have to each other. And making sure that the uh, work is, you know, still interconnected. They just, you know, there might be a brand change. So this is very interesting, and I think that there's a lot of potential for the good and bad. But I think overall, it'd probably be a good option for them to do it because it allows them to have a lot more uh, control and freedom in how they market and how they uh, approach, you know, new partnerships and that kind of thing. So I think there's a lot of potential in both sides, but I think the I'm leaning towards uh, more on changing it to what I don't know. There's a lot of different options. Um, Open Gecko is a is an option. Uh, there's you know uh, Reptile OS, something that's connected in some way to 
OpenSUSE. So those are those are suggestions from the chat, by the way. Uh, and uh, well, Gecko Linux is already a thing, and that was that was listed, uh, listed in the chat too. Uh, but that's a that'd be a good name if they didn't already exist. <laughs> so Gecko Linux, that's a good one too, because that's Gecko is the name of the chameleon that they. Anyway, I think this is an interesting uh, situation, and I will keep you up to date if there's any more news on this topic. But I think that they, it, if they do have a decision, it won't be anytime soon because uh, Richard Brown said this, that there's no real time pressure on this from any side right now. So it's really an organic growth thing. So they'll decide when it makes sense for both of them to do that. So it may or may not take, you know, sometime. It may, it may happen some this year. Maybe may, t- may not happen this year at all. So who knows? But I do think that it is an interesting topic, and if it, if we do get more information about this, I will cover it in a future episode of This Week in Linux. So if you'd like to have more information about this, I'll have a link to the LWN article about it in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is also brought to you by, well, you, the community, and specifically the patrons of the Tux Digital channel and the This Week in Linux podcast. So if you are not aware, uh, being a patron uh, gives a, a monthly donation or contra- contribution to the Tux Digital uh, channel, as well as the podcast This Week in Linux, and allows me to spend more time creating content and working on the show. Uh, so whether that's a dollar or whether that's $5 or whatever, anything at all is awesome. So uh, if you would like to do that and help out the show, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash Patreon, or you can go to tuxdigital.com slash sponsors to use the sponsors platform rather than the Patreon. Depends on which one you like more. If you already have a Patreon account, then it makes sense to use that one. If you don't like Patreon, then sponsors is another option to try out because I, I think sponsors is a pretty good system as well. So if you would like to you, become a patron, either one of those is great and will work just fine. But it is worth noting that there's a $3 minimum on the sponsors because of how the transaction fees go. And the Patreon is a $1 minimum, but the reason for that is because they actually have now the same structure of transaction fees, but I have a like a grandfathered-in account of Patreon, so they don't do that, so I can kind of pick, pick and choose that sort of thing. Anyway, it doesn't matter, uh, but it is worth noting that if you do want to use sponsors, there is a section in the settings of your account that will say Stripe account or you know putting in Stripe payment. So there's a like you don't actually need a Stripe account. When I first talked about sponsors, I had people asking me why do I need to make a Stripe account? You don't actually need to do that. That is for just creators. So if you want to be a patron to someone on sponsors, you just put in your credit card information in that Stripe section or the payment methods section, not an actual Stripe account. You don't need those. Uh, so just wanted to clarify that part. But if you would like to you know donate to the channel and contribute as a as a patron to whether whether you're using Patreon or sponsors. It would be very much appreciated. Actually, amazing because it helps me make the content. And if you're not aware, making a podcast is a ton of work. I mean, if you just take in just this week in Linux by itself, there's uh, there's there's research, there's prep, there's trying to find the topics to cover, researching all the topics, uh, prepping the show, recording the show, editing the show, uh, publishing the show, and doing all the metadata and all that stuff. So there is a lot of work to do it. And any amount of money uh, offered is incredibly appreciated so if you would like to become a patron i would very much appreciate that uh so again just go to touchdigital.com slash sponsors or touchdigital.com slash patreon to become a patron up next in the show is an interesting project that is coming from the uh well the end of intergos so we talked about this previously intergos is uh had announced that they were going to end their project and no longer make new versions and that they were offering the code to be used by another project or, you know, the community in general. And we also talked about at the end of that segment that there was a project called Endeavor that was uh, using uh, or working on trying to make a project and we're working on like making a name and everything. But they decided to actually stick with the name Endeavor. So they were going to Endeavor OS. And this is interesting because it's it, the way that they're approaching this is pretty interesting. And so they're they're looking to take the place of Intergos essentially, but not only just in a spiritual successor, but also in the kind of a successor to what people thought Intergo was their Intergos was, rather than what it actually was. So most people that you talk to about Intergos, they would typically say that Intergos is an easy installer for Arch. But that's not what it really was. Yes, 
that is true. If you just use the base install, you essentially just got Arch. A little bit more of extra stuff like extra repos and stuff, but mostly it was mostly Arch. However, if you picked any of the DEs, there was a lot of customization. There was there was theme customizations. There was modifications to the layouts. There was so many. There was like widgets installed. There was like custom icons that they got from the Numix team of creating like a partnership with them. There was like a lot of stuff that they did that created a situation where Intergos is no longer an installer. It is an installer and an extra layer on top. So it's effectively its own distro. So it is an interesting situation. Whereas Endeavor is not exactly going to be copying Interagos. They're going to take the approach of being a successor in the sense that they're going to do basically what people thought Interagos was. They're going to provide a easy installer to Arch, but also add some extra you know, niceties and making it simple and how to like pick a DE and it will like, automatically set up stuff. But what's really cool about this, one of the things I like is that they're very open to input and I have suggested a few things and they have looked into it uh, and have decided to adopt some of the things I suggested, but I'm not going to go into details of like what it all that was, but one of the things that they did say that they're going to do is have 10 different DEs that they're going to offer. Now, one of the things that I really wanted Intergos to do for a long time that they didn't ever do was to create an install that gave you the vanilla options from Arch. Now, I like the idea of having the custom theme but also, that's a lot of work. And I also don't really want a particular theme because I, maybe I want to have a different design, a different approach. So I wanted the option to have a vanilla install from the Arch packages. So Endeavor OS is actually going to offer that as an option. So you will have the option to use a theme that they provide. Well, actually, they're not providing, they're not making it. They're just selecting a theme from the community which is great because they're less work for them, but at the same time, they still make a, a nice polished look. But you can also choose to get the inv vanilla in uh, install instead, which is very cool because that means you could have the base setup of Arch very close to Arch, even though there might be some extra stuff here and there, but very, uh, very, very close to Arch, even with like a nice GUI install. So that's pretty cool. Now, the, the distribution is currently in beta, now they they they've actually been I've actually tried it, and it it does work fairly well for what they're trying to do, even though it's beta. But it is beta, so there are some issues, of course. Uh, but there are things that are also pretty interesting that they are um, doing. Another thing that the community for Integros really wanted for a very long time that was never done, and that is an offline installer. So they're going to be doing 10 DEs that includes OpenBox, i3, GNOME, Budgie, Cinnamon, Deepin. Plasma, uh, and a base install, which is essentially just the core, uh, a core system install without any D whatsoever, uh, and some other stuff. And they're also going to be doing an offline installer, and those oh wait, those are all online net installs. And they're also going to do an offline installer for XFC, a custom XFCE. So that is a pretty interesting approach because one of the things that people have been wanting was a vanilla install and an offline installer. And Intergos didn't want to do that at any point. But now, because Endeavor is taking over, kind of like the successor, they're going to be doing what the community has been requesting for a long time, which is really cool to, to see being done. Uh, now, the website is still pretty much under development. This is the only thing that's on their website is the blog post. Uh, but I, they are going to be working on releasing their website and the new uh, versions of the, like, the actual released version of the uh, installer and the OS. Uh, sometime in mid-July, I'm pretty sure it's July 15th, but uh, there were some uh, issues where they had, they, they planned to do it on July 1st, but they had some issues that they had to take care of that uh, pushed it back a little bit. So it's July 15th is what it's currently set at. And so far, my experience with it is that it's pretty, it's pretty impressive for how small amount of time they've been working on it and how much they're trying to do and what they're trying to do. And overall, I think the roadmap has a lot of potential. So I'll be definitely taking out Endeavor OS in the future. And when they do a release for Endeavor OS, I will definitely be covering it because I'm going to test it and you know let you know what I think about it as well as you know what all the different options that they, they finally landed on and all that. So yeah, be sure to check out the show notes for a link to their blog post. 
and also be sure to subscribe to get more information about this project when there is some. So yeah, uh, link in the show notes. Up next in the show is Regolith Linux. Regolith is uh, an interesting distribution that is trying to do a combination of Ubuntu with i3. So if you have never heard of i3, it is a very popular lightweight tiling window manager that lets you easily move, arrange, and tile windows without having to leave your keyboard. So the idea is that it will automatically tile applications when you launch them into a workspace that will adjust and maneuver things uh, automatically. You can choose to move things around if you want to, and also you can even change it to a floating instead of tiling if you want, like like most window managers typically are floating. But it allows you to do a lot of different things. So it's pretty interesting. And Regolith is being developed by uh, Ken Gilmore and comes with a lot of uh, interesting defaults in the sense that i3 has some really weird defaults and this one actually comes with some more sane defaults so that's nice to see uh, and then also you don't another, one of the best things about this particular project is that you don't have to replace your existing distro you don't have to reinstall regolith in order to use it uh, or you not reinstall but you don't have to install the distro in order to use it you can actually install a ppa and install the i3 uh, regolith environment uh, as an alternate desktop environment or an alternate session. So that's pretty cool. And Regolith also comes with all the things that i3 users would like, like i3wm, i3blocks, i3bar, Conkey, and Compton as a compositor if you want it. So there's a lot of things that are do- being done for this, and it's really interesting because I've been trying to find an i3 uh, Ubuntu-based for a very long time, so that's pretty cool that they're being they're making it now. And if you would like to try your hand at it, and as my friend uh, Ryan would say from Destination Linux, become an i3 prodigy. Uh, you can uh, have a link to the in the show notes to Regolith Linux, and uh, this might be a really easy way to get started to you know try out i3. Where you know most of the time getting i3, you have to require a different. Uh, there's not really an easy way in, but now there is. So if you are interested, I have a link in the show notes. Up next in the show is some information from the Pine64 team, and that is the Pinebook Pro is getting some spec bumps. Now, not like huge bumps, but there are interesting bumps uh, in the sense that they're going to improve the keyboard as well as improve the Bluetooth module. So you can get a support for Bluetooth 5, uh, 5.0. So that's pretty cool. Uh, and I really like the idea they're going to improve, the, give you options for the keyboard. So you can have, like, depending on what kind of keyboard you want, that's cool. So... For the most part, I just wanted to talk about this because I'm so excited about the Pinebook Pro. I can't wait till it actually comes out. We don't have a we don't have a release date yet, unfortunately, but uh, I am very excited about this. So I just I just can't wait. So I just want to talk about it again. You know, Pinebook Pro is a really cool uh, ARM laptop that is a fairly cheap, but also you know pretty pretty powerful. I actually have a Pinebook. Uh, one or the Pinebook original. I don't really what the name of it. I think it's just called Pinebook. So Pinebook and then Pinebook Pro. And I have the Pinebook, and it is a surprisingly good piece of hardware for the price. It's only a hundred dollars to get the regular Pinebook book, and it's it's only two hundred dollars to get the Pinebook Pro. But the build quality of the regular Pinebook is feels like a hundred dollars. And based on the statements of what Pine64 is doing with the Pinebook Pro, that's not going to be the case for the Pinebook Pro. It's going to have like an, like a metal uh, body, you know, a chassis kind of stuff. It's going to have uh, four gigs of RAM. It's going to have a 14.1 1080p IPS display. It's going to have a USB 3.0, 2.0 USB Type C. It's going to have support for microSD. It's going to have Wi-Fi plus the new the new Bluetooth 5. It's going to have a 10,000 milliamp battery. And I, I'm just so excited. Make release it, or or um, I I could get a review unit. I think that's a good idea. I should get a review unit. You know, I mean, pay for it. Sure, why not? Just you know, let me have early access. I'm just Maybe. If you'd like to learn more about this particular uh, piece of hardware, I have a link in the show notes to their June um, update for their hardware. Also, the Pine Phone. Super excited about the Pine Phone and the Pine Tab, too. I want all their stuff at this point. So, yeah. Up next in the show is some more hardware news, and that is from Slimbook. They've announced a new all in one Linux PC. And this one is a very interesting thing in the sense that it has some pretty good specs, but also in the sense that it looks surprisingly uncannily uncannily 
well, anyway, uncanny to an Apple product. So it looks like the iMac, you know, they're very similar in how the iMac was made. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because it does look pretty good. And having the hardware uh, being pretty good also is a good sign. And at the same time, because it's not actually an Apple, you can, you know, update it and use it properly and not have to worry about it, you know, not being supported in the next, you know, year and a half. So there's that too. But this is a, this uh, hardware is being named Apollo and it has an aluminum alloy body for the, the, the build, build quality. So that's pretty good. And they also have a, uh, the structure, this is like the specs of the, of the computer and it's a 23.6 inch LCD IPS monitor. They're going to have, uh, it's a high definition panel, which is interesting because they have an extra coating on the glass for a retina effect. I don't really know what that means, but it's interesting because it's going to like, it gives like color pops or something like that. So I'm curious what that might look like. So maybe like if they have like a video, I couldn't find a video demonstrating that, but hopefully they make one. Uh, there's also going to have support for the, uh, I, the eighth gen Intel i5 and i7 processors. It's going to have eight to 32 gigabytes of RAM as options and up to a one terabyte SSD is going to be available as well. And it's going to have uh, onboard Intel graphics. So, it is kind of expensive though. It's eight hundred dollars to get the i five version and nine and uh, well, it's seven ninety nine and eight ninety nine to get the i seven version. So it is pretty, it is kind of expensive for that kind of uh, that piece of kind of hardware. Uh, but at the same time, it is very sleek and maybe that's worth it. I don't know. I don't know. It depends on the person who's ordering, of course. But I would like to say that it is you know really nice looking hardware and it is really cool that these companies are using you know, or, you know, building stuff specifically for Linux that are, that's really looking nice because we used to have the options of doesn't have Linux looks really nice. Does have Linux kind of like weird and bulky. Now we're getting more and more, you know, like the Dell XPS, the slim book all in one, the, the slim book also has their, like the actual slim book is a really nice, like clean laptop. Then we're getting the pine book pro, which is like going to be a really nice clean arm laptop for Linux. Like, it's really exciting to see these companies build, you know, high quality and really nice looking uh, hardware for Linux these days. So, uh, you know, great for that. And thank you for, you know, participating in that, in that part of the, the industry and the community and everything. So if you'd like to learn more about this particular PC, I'll have a link to it where you can buy it in the show notes from Slimbook. And uh, yeah, I have a link to it in the show notes. How much is the stand? <laughs> oh man. I wish I had seen that joke before I finished the talk or the section. And the stand is not a thousand dollars. So, you know, it's only well, you, they could say it's it's you could you could say it's nine hundred dollars, but the stand comes for free. <laughs> Up next in the show is some really great news for Mattermost. If you're not heard of it, Mattermost is a open source alternative to Slack. And Slack is like a cloud-based uh, team collaboration software that's it's, it's pretty popular. It uses, uh, it's like an internal team communication software and uh, it's, it's heavily used for startups, enterprises, and even some open source projects use it a lot too. So um, it's, it's really, it's really interesting that Mattermost is doing this, is, is like building. They've been working on it for five years or so and it's very uh, robust in what it can do. And the, they have announced that they have gotten a funding series for the Series B funding from venture, uh, venture capitalists uh, for $50 million to build out more of um, more of Mattermost. So in comparison to the main player in this space, which is Slack, Slack was valued recently at $20 billion. So in comparison, that's not a lot, but in the sense of an open source project, $50 million is gigantic. So the, what they can, they can do a lot of stuff and they can ramp up. They said they're essentially going to do the same thing they were already doing with the open source uh, team, uh, team collaboration or team communication uh, system. They're still going to continue doing that, but they're going to ramp it up even more and do faster, add more features, which is awesome because you don't have to pay for their enterprise hosted version if you would like to host it yourself because it is open source, and that is awesome. And this is a 
a really interesting piece of software. There's a lot of cool features of it. There's even other side projects that connect to it that I like as well. Uh, there's there's a lot of good stuff. The and in the prices for the enterprise hosted version, the E10 and E20, are actually roughly about half the price compared to Slack's service. So if you did want to use it in an enterprise level, then you could do so without having to host without having to host it yourself and still save a significant amount of of money there too. So that's pretty cool. It's like th- it's like three dollars and twenty five cents per person per month, which depending on how many people you have in your team, that could be a lot of money. But you can also just open source it or use the open source version and use it that way. But there's a it's really cool that they were able to get this amount of funding. But they were also able to get twenty million dollars funding for their Series A in February, as well as a few seed round stuff uh, from uh, a couple years ago. So they've been able to raise basically seventy million dollars in the past couple months or so. So there's a lot of potential for this particular project uh, based on this, uh, this, you know, these, this funding. I don't know how much involvement these, the Y Combinator and these venture capitalists have, but Y Combinator is one of the few that is the one, it's like they, they focus on helping startups and helping open source projects. So, uh, you know, seeing them doing it is, 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 is less of a problem as far as the venture capitalist part, but uh, I would like to see if what the like the value like what benefits these people get from their funding. But anyway, I do think it's awesome, and Mattermost has, makes a lot of good stuff, and it, it is a very solid uh, option for a Slack alternative if you would like to. And so yeah, I would definitely suggest it. It's it's there's there's a few of those. Uh, Matrix is kind of one. Uh, Rocket Chat, Mattermost, and there are a couple others, but I think Mattermost is so far the the most uh, well polished of the options, you know, as a single uh, project entity. So, like for example, with Matrix, you need to use Riot in order to use it, or as uh, Rocket Chat is not as polished as featureful as Mattermost. So, that's the kind of thing. But you know, Mattermost, it's really interesting to have all these different open source options. But I think if you're going to just, you know, make a Slack alternative for the purpose of being a Slack alternative, Mattermost is a great option. So I have a link to this blog post as well as Mattermost itself in the show notes below. Up next in the show is a new project called Wayfire. Wayfire is actually going to be kind of bringing some compiz effects to Wayland. It is a compositor for Wayland that adds a lot of cool stuff. And the fact that it's still in basically pre-alpha, like they're calling it pre-alpha quality, and only supports basic stuff or basic functionality. They actually do have quite a few things that are pretty cool that are I would not say are basic things, but you know, we'll get to that in a second. So, they so far they have support for workspace previews like the expose mode and stuff like that as well as grid and auto snapping of windows on the edges edges. Way, Wayfire so they've actually they they are just a they they describe themselves as a 3D Wayland compositor built on the WL Roots project and they and it supports uh, workspaces configurable bindings it's currently working on a variety of different visual elements and they and they say that they uh, X Wayland should have already uh, already have support for it with the compositor and Wayfire is currently tackling some like tiling window support through like sway uh, window rules uh, on-screen keyboard support and many more things so th- those are the kind of the basic things but they're also doing some stuff like adding uh, wobbly windows effects and stuff like that so there's quite a few things including window snapping and even the 3d desktop cube so bringing back the cube from you know like the compiz days on wayland so that's pretty cool uh, i mean the cube itself is not really that useful but it's cool that they're working on bringing those kinds of features to Wayland because that's just cool in general. Uh, it also is worth noting that KWIN has support for this stuff too. I'm not really sure how much of that support is on Wayland, but you know you can do all the like most of the stuff you can do in Compass is also available with KWIN. Uh, so there's that. Uh, but it is pretty cool that Wayfire is bringing this stuff to Compass or to Wayland as a as an option for a compositor because. Uh, I, I definitely don't need the desktop cube, but I do like to play with it because so, it is kind of fun, even if it is ridiculous and worthless and whatever. But anyway, it is still kind of fun. So if you'd like to learn more about Wayfire, I have a link to it in the show notes. Up next in the show, CERN has announced that they're leaving Microsoft behind to switch to open source software. Now, they've actually been working on this for a little bit, like about a year or so. Uh, but they are uh, officially going to be doing it fairly soon. 
So CERN is an international research center. If you've not heard of it, they, you've probably heard of it in the sense of like the CERN particle accelerator that they've been, that they did and are still doing really. Uh, but they've, they've been using a combination of open source as well as Microsoft products. And they've decided that they're going to leave as much possible behind for, of the Microsoft stuff because of the licensing, fee, licensing fees that's going to be uh, coming to them because of some weird changes that uh, Microsoft has decided to do. So CERN is using open source mostly. Uh, um, today they use it on their desktops, uh, on, on a lot of open source in general, but they used Windows on their desktops. Uh, so that's one of the things that they're going to be changing significantly. And this is kind of weird because they Microsoft is deciding to increase their licensing fees by like a factor of 10. So 10 times more of what they already currently pay. And it's because they decided to remove their classification as like a school or, you know, like they had some kind of uh, partnership with, not really a partnership, they had a deal with Microsoft that they'd pay like institution fees and um, or like uh, school fees rather than the full price. But now Microsoft has decided to remove that fee benefit from them and increase the price drastically. So they decided to completely get rid of Microsoft in order to go to open source. Now they've said they're going to get rid of it, but they, you know, it's going to be a process kind of thing. So uh, that's really awesome. And I think that it's definitely something that pretty much every single company and institution and research thing should do because it just makes the most sense. So I'm glad to hear that CERN is doing that because it is an important, uh, you know, research center in, you know, just in general. So like the, 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 what the, the stuff they're doing for science is really useful and it's really nice to, you know, here that open source is going to be allowing them to do that. So, yeah. If you'd like to learn more about this particular thing, I'll have a link to the blog post from the CERN website in the show notes. Up next in the show is some unfortunate news, but not as bad as it's kind of been played out to be. Uh, it's it's some information from Netflix has been released as they have released some uh, security uh, notices for CVEs and, the, and some TCP bugs for potential denial of service attacks. Now, this is an interesting situation because this affects Linux and FreeBSD, and it's not—it's not like catastrophically bad. It's just uh, it, it would be—it would allow a attacker to give you very, very annoying issues. So the vulnerabilities specifically relate to the maximum segment size or MMS and the TCP selective acknowledgement, aka SAC, capabilities. The most serious one is called SAC Panic. And it allows a remotely triggered kernel panic on a recent on recent Linux kernels. So essentially, what it is is that this situation can lead to a kernel panic via integer inter, inter, integer overflows, and it allows them to denial of service attack and also take down services. Um, so it's not really that big of an issue because it is already been addressed. So you just need to update your systems. Um, but they, it is important to note that they do have one severity that is listed as important, while the other two are listed as moderate. However, what's the reason why it's not as severe? You know, because people will say like there's going to be a patch, of course, always, and that's true. And in, in this case, it's also true. But there's also a mitigation technique so that even if your system is not updated that fast, if you have an LTS release or something like that, uh, you might not get your kernel that fast to get the patch. Uh, there is a mitigation that's really easy to do and takes very little time and also is you know super simple it's basically one line of code or one command line you just put it in a terminal run it and you're mitigated so i'll have a link to uh, the advisory notice from netflix as well as in the show notes i'll have the list of what you need to do as far as how to mitigate it so that you can do that as soon as possible so yeah if you want to learn more about this i'll have a link to all that in the show notes up next in the show is the NSA is looking to contribute to Core Boot. Now, if you're not aware, the NSA is the National Security Agency of the U.S. government, and they are looking to develop or to contribute to the Core Boot project. Uh, specifically, uh, Eugene Myers of the NSA under Information Assurance Research, or and also the NSA slash CSS Research Directorate, has been leading some work on the STM PE implementation for Core Boot. So the STM is the implementation for SMI Transfer Monitor to offer protected execution services on x86 by serving as a hypervisor 
in x86 SMM, SMM mode. Now, this is actually kind of worth noting because it is, I'm kind of putting in there because it's, you know, NSA kind of stuff. And, you know, yes, the NSA is, is horrible. Uh, but in some cases that they, you know, there's some things that could be done properly. You know, for example, the source code is open. And in order to be in open and to be in core boot, it has to be audited by the core boot team. And the, the reason why I'm talking about this is because this code has actually been uh, worked on for a while, for like a year or so. But the code is actually under review right now from the core boot team, whether it's going to be included or not. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that this is going to be a bad thing, because if you've ever heard of SE Linux, SE Linux was actually um, in part made by NSA. Not completely, but in part was made by the NSA. So there, there are things that they have contributed to the project and to the community that's not necessarily horrible. Uh, however, it is the NSA, so, you know, it's just kind of like if you are a code auditor or you have or you're good at security and you'd like to make sure that this code is in in the core boot this is just an opportunity i wanted to bring up to see if you would like to check that out because you know it might be necessary <laughs> who knows anyway if you'd like to learn more about this particular thing i'll have a link to it in the show notes up next in the show is some interesting news from huawei that they have now a potential alternative for android huawei is you know not had a great year recently with the U.S. government banning them for being involved in any U.S. You know, companies and the issues caused with that because of Google and their Android smartphones. And, you know, and, and, and Huawei is, is pretty sure it was, at one point it was the second biggest, but if you count, uh, manufacturer, I mean, but if you count the, like, low-end hardware, it became the number one uh, Android uh, company, that oil well, smartphone maker company. And they, they've had a lot of, you know, issues to deal with recently. Uh, some of it fair, some of it not clear, but it's not about necessarily Huawei in that sense. Because we talked about in a previous episode, if you'd like to learn more about that, I have a link to, in that in the show notes. But this is actually pretty interesting because they've been contemplating about how they're going to re- uh, get rid of uh, Android and have, what are they, they going to use to replace it. And it appears that they're exploring something called Aurora, Aurora OS. And it's actually based on Selfish OS, OS we've talked about previously in another episode that is made by the Yola, the Yola company. And, and the reason why they're doing it is because it has a very heavy focus on privacy and security, which is interesting because of the allegations about Huawei. So anyway, uh, many companies have tried and failed to launch an alternative to Android and iOS. And in this case, it's going to be interesting to see what happens because Huawei doesn't really have a choice. They have to do this, and it'll be interesting to see um, what the outcome of, of this is and whether or not using something like this would work. Because Selfish OS does say they have support for Android applications, and therefore maybe that's why they're using something that's based on that. Uh, so there is some potential there, and I'm very curious to see what happens with them. Uh, so, you know, they're going to have to deal with whether they can have the apps or not, and if they do have the ability to use those apps it might be a good option for them. So anyway, I'm looking forward to you know seeing what happens because it's pretty interesting, and I will keep you up to date on the show when we find out more about their future, I guess. Yeah, so link in the show notes to this particular article if you'd like to learn more. Finally this week in the show, I have not talked about Humble Bundle in a very long time, and I wanted to talk about it because this is a really interesting book bundle that's coming out right now, or is currently out right now, and it is a programming book bundle. So if you've ever been interested in programming, there's a variety of different types of languages that you could check out through this bundle. And uh, you can get up to 20, I think it's 25 different books for $15 or something like that. And some of the, the some of the language you can learn in this bundle is Python, Go, C++, Java, JavaScript. And if you want to, for some reason, C Sharp and .NET uh, and some other ones as well. Uh, so if you're interested in checking that out, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. And also want to let you know that the link in the show notes is an affiliate link to the Humble Bundle. So if you do purchase it, a small percentage of the uh, of the purchase will go to the This Week in Linux podcast as well as the Tux Digital channel to help fund in the creation of this show. So, uh, yeah, if you're interested in checking it out, I have a link in the show notes. And, uh, yeah, if you do, if you are interested in checking it out, please use that link because it will benefit the, the show. So link in the show notes. 
Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via Patreon, sponsors, PayPal, and others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. Or if you're in Europe, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash Linux Everywhere EU for shipping inside of Europe. We also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Private Internet Access, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. If you liked some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. And just a reminder, this show is live usually every Saturday, sometimes not Saturday, sometimes Sunday, which is this time. But for the most of the time, it's usually Saturdays and usually every Saturday, but not always because sometimes I'm at a conference and then I'm not doing it live. Then I... So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.